Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, The Role of Targeted Therapy in Severe Asthma with Type 2 Inflammation, is brought to you by CHEST. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Sandra Adams, a professor of medicine in the Pulmonary and Critical Care Division of UT Health San Antonio and staff physician at the South Texas Veterans Healthcare System. Therapy for severe asthma has been revolutionized over the last few years by the availability of targeted therapy for type 2 inflammation. This is why today we'll be discussing how to incorporate readily available biomarkers to identify different phenotypes of asthma in order to target therapy and how to best assess response. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Sandra Adams. Here with me today is Dr. Mario Castro, Chief of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Dr. Castro, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Adams. So to start off, Dr. Castro, can you walk us through the targeted therapies that are available for severe asthma with type 2 inflammation? Sure. The five biologics that are currently approved, one of them has been now around for 15 years, omelizumab. It's a monoclonal antibody against IgE. And it's indicated for patients with severe persistent allergic asthma, ages six and older. We now have three anti-L5 medications that are approved for the treatment of patients' severe persistent asthma in the U.S. This is rezolizumab, mepolizumab, and benralizumab. And these three anti-L5 agents are pretty similar in terms of their efficacy for the treatment of severe persistent asthma. The main difference is rezolizumab is only available intravenously, while mepolizumab and benralizumab are available subcutaneously. These products are available currently in the U.S. for, again, treatment of severe asthma, whereas mepolizumab also has a second indication for the treatment of EGPA or eosinophilic granulomatous polyangitis or what's used to be called Church-Straw syndrome. The fifth biologic we have available in the U.S. is dupulumab, and it has several indications. It was approved first for atopic dermatitis and then for moderate to severe asthma with an eosinophilic phenotype, and then most recently for chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyposis. And its mechanism of action is inhibiting the anti-IL-4-alpha receptor. By inhibiting that receptor, it's able to block the actions of both IL-4 and IL-13, two of the key TH2 cytokines. Okay, that's great information for everybody. Just a nice review. Can you tell us some of the efficacy data available to support the use of these targeted therapies, like the types you just talked about on patients with severe asthma? Sure. And I'll just briefly cover the impact that these agents have on a couple of the key endpoints that we have studied them for and which for they were approved, which is exacerbations due to asthma. Usually these are exacerbations that require oral corticosteroids and then also impact on lung function in these patients. Now, when we think about 
omelizumab. The best study for that is the extra study by Nick Hanania. And in that study, it showed that asthma exacerbations were reduced by about 25% in those patients that have severe allergic asthma that fall within the IgE dosing criteria of 30 to 700. Now, impact on lung function, though, with omelizumab is less consistent. In fact, most studies have not shown a significant impact of omelizumab on lung function, which is an important concept to think about when you're selecting patients and deciding, you know, does this patient's baseline lung function need improvement or not? Now, the three anti-L5s that we mentioned, the first is mepolizumab. And mepolizumab in the DREAM study and in the subsequent MENSA study showed about a 50% reduction in exacerbations. Now, when we look at lung function with mepolizumab, a little bit less impressive. It's about 100 mLs improvement over placebo. The mepolizumab also had a study called Sirius, which looked at reducing oral steroids in patients that were chronic oral steroid requiring and showed about a 50% reduction in oral steroids. Now, rizalizumab also has about a 50% reduction in exacerbations, a little bit more improvement in lung function on the range of 100 to 130 mLs over placebo. And then lastly, with benralizumab, which is again the third anti-L5 that inhibits through the IL-5 receptor, benralizumab in its studies, seroconclima, showed about a 50% reduction in exacerbations, but also importantly improved lung function about 100 to 160 mLs over placebo. In the Zonda study, benralizumab showed that it was able to reduce the oral steroid dose by about 75%. Importantly, about half the patients treated with benralizumab that were requiring oral steroids chronically were able to come off their medication, their oral steroid altogether. The last biologic are dupulumab. And again, it's the IL-4 alpha receptor blocker. And dupulumab showed in the QUEST study, again, about a 50% reduction in exacerbations, but importantly, a significant improvement in lung function on the order of at least around 140 to 150 mLs. And this was sustained over a year-long period of time. Now, Dupulumab also did an oral steroid-dependent study called Venture. And Venture showed, again, very similar to the Benralizumab, showed that there was about a 70% reduction in the oral steroid dose, and about half the patients were able to come off their oral steroids altogether. So these are some of the key results that we've seen with these five biologics and impacting really in a game changer for our patients. It sounds like it. And I know that a lot of the patients out there have different characteristics. I'm interested in hearing your strategy about phenotyping and selecting which of these therapies is best for which patients? Yeah, and, and that's a difficult question from the standpoint, uh, you know, we wish we had better biomarkers. I wish we had a diabetes measures just like we do with a glycosylate hemoglobin, but we don't have it. And so what we currently use are really three biomarkers in our management of patients with severe asthma. First, we can look at eosinophils, and typically we use the CBC with differential to look at the absolute eosinophil count. And there we're looking for an eosinophil level of at least 150 or greater, but certainly most consider eosinophilia being significant at 300 or greater. And we think that blood eosinophils correlate to what's happening in the airway that we can measure in research studies with the sputum eosinophils. The second biomarker that we use pretty often is pheno, 
which stands for fractional expired nitric oxide level. And this is a test that's readily available, can be measured even in the outpatient setting, where you breathe into the device for about 10 seconds. And what it does is it measures oxidative nitrative stress in the airways and also reflects mechanisms of IL-13 related inflammation in the airway. And pheno then allows us to reflect the actual inflammation that is in the airway of these patients. We typically say a pheno level of greater than 20 parts per billion reflects T2 inflammation. The third biomarker we have is IgE, hemoglobin E. And this has been around for a number of years. And we know it's a marker of allergic asthma. And we know that when it's elevated, it certainly can indicate allergic disease, but then we have to order specific IgEs, depending on our region of the country, of what's you know the predominant allergens in that region of the country to understand that patient's allergic asthma better. Now, the one thing that is interesting about IgE, it does not predict response to anti-IgE therapy, whereas elevated EOs and elevated pheno does predict response to biologic therapy with the greater the bloody eosinophil count reflecting, in general, a better response to anti-IL-5 therapy. That's great information. So for those just joining us, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Sandra Adams, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mario Castro to discuss targeted therapy in patients with severe asthma with type 2 inflammation. So, Dr. Castro, how do you recommend monitoring a patient's response to therapy? In other words, kind of what are the subjective and objective criteria you use? And then how soon do you follow up your patients to assess their response to therapy? Well, thanks, Dr. Adam. I think this is an important question because, you know, we all struggle a little bit in terms of how to correctly follow our patients with a chronic disease. And asthma is certainly no different. And what we found is that there are really three things that I can use to monitor my patient's response to therapy. The first I use is the asthma control test. This is a symptomatic questionnaire that patients can fill out. I typically just have it on a clipboard in the office and they fill it out while they're waiting for me and then I review that with them. And the asthma control test is very helpful because it gives you an objective measurement of asthma control reported by the patient. And for a response, we're wanting to see a shift of at least three or more in the asthma control test score, the ACT. Now, the second measure I use is lung function. And what we do with lung function is we measure spirometry. And most practices, you know, have access to a pulmonary function lab or have a spirometer in their practice. And what we're looking for is an improvement in the FV1 of at least 100 to 150 ml from their prior baseline. So that indicates to us a lung function responder. Then the last criteria that I use is exacerbations. We want to reduce exacerbations often with these biologic therapies. And typically what we're looking for is at least a 50% reduction in their exacerbations, ideally getting to zero. But we know that some patients are just gonna encounter a viral infection and, and exacerbate. So you know, you want to see at least a reduction about 50% from their prior year's baseline. The last thing I sometimes use in a subset of patients is those that require chronic oral steroids. In those patients, I'm looking for at least a 50% reduction 
in their oral steroid dose. So for example, if they were taking 20 milligrams a day of prednisone per day and I started biologic, I want to see that patient actually go down to 10 milligrams or less. And ideally, of course, off altogether because of long-term steroid effects. Now, how do we time this in terms of, you know, how long do we keep these therapies on? And, and certainly this is evolving, but the latest guidelines from GINA and other international guidelines suggest that you should be evaluating your patient's response to therapy on a regular basis and making a decision by four to six months. And certainly by six months, you can make a decision in most patients whether or not they're responding. If the patient doesn't have a response in this time period, then it's time to move on to a different class of biologic therapy. I've you know, seen patients with elevated eosinophil counts. They should respond to anti-L5 therapy, but they don't. And it's maybe because the elevated eosinophil count is actually reflecting more T2 inflammation, and then you switch them over to an IL-4 receptor blocker, and then they respond. So certainly we know that we sometimes have to just adjust the therapy within a relatively short period of time. And because of the expense of these biologics, we don't want to keep them on forever just to do something. We need to really discontinue the agent if it's not helping them or move on to a different class. Sure, that sounds like... It makes a lot of sense, and it's very practical information. It sounds like we need to be flexible enough to change, but really not just continue forever on one particular medicine. So, Dr. Castro, just to bring our discussion to a close, what's at least one unmet need, and what are the future directions of targeted therapy in patients with severe asthma with type 2 inflammation that you'd like to pass along to our listeners? Well, we really would like to have something that is not necessarily injectable. We'd like to have something that you could either inhale, because a lot of our patients are very used to using inhaled therapy, or we'd like to, you know, of course, take it something that is oral. And certainly, we know compliance would likely, you know, be very good with these routes of administration and and allow us to kind of make it even broader available for our patients in terms of their access to this medication. So certainly this is an unmet need for patients with type 2 inflammation at this point, and our hope is in the near future we'll have those available. That would be great. Well, with those thoughtful comments, we're going to close the program today. I want to thank my colleague, Dr. Mario Castro, for sharing insights on how to best evaluate and treat patients with severe asthma with type 2 inflammation. Dr. Castro, it was great having you on the program. Thank you, Dr. Adams, for having me, and I hope this is helpful to our listening audience. This activity was part of a series provided in partnership with CHEST. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Genentech a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.